The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine Podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, October the 22nd on CBC Radio. As Israel-Hamas war wears on, Gaza's healthcare system is in crisis. First up today, we'll take stock of how the situation is affecting patients, staff, infrastructure and equipment. After that, Zadie Smith's new novel is chock full of conspiracy theories, a populist icon and irrational politics. Sound familiar? The acclaimed author will connect the dots between her historical fiction and our own upside-down world. An Israeli and a Palestinian who've lost family members in conflict will offer their perspectives on the profound grief gripping their communities today. And later on, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon has hit the big screen, and I'll speak with the author of the book behind it and the Osage Nation chief who consulted on the film. That all starts right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. Since this Israel-Hamas war began, the healthcare system in Gaza has fallen into a dire state of crisis. Israeli airstrikes have injured thousands of civilians who need medical help. That's in addition to the regular healthcare people need, from women delivering babies to people needing care for ailments and diseases. And the World Health Organization says four hospitals in the northern part of Gaza had to be evacuated and are no longer operational. This is all posing severe challenges to medical professionals trying to help patients. Yara Asi is an assistant professor of global health and informatics at the University of Central Florida. She's also director for the academic research group, the Palestinian Program for Health and Human Rights. Yara, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. Um, You're originally from the West Bank. You have colleagues in Gaza as well, students who you have taught who are now working there. What are you hearing about how they describe the state of the healthcare system inside Gaza right now? Yeah, I mean, you you used the word crisis earlier, and I think we have even passed that point. Um, Every update is more and more harrowing, um, and that's when the updates come, because as we know, electricity and internet has been intermittent, and the updates are less uh, common at this point. But the reports we're hearing from physicians, paramedics, medical students are of... uh, 
beyond catastrophic, beyond de description. I mean, we're having surgeons perform surgeries without anesthetics. We're having uh, surgeons use vinegar as antiseptic because they've run out of materials. And now the corner stores have run out of vinegar. Hmm. Um, we are seeing really a healthcare system on its knees. And despite that, more than two weeks in, all these healthcare workers who themselves, we must remember, are terrified for their lives, uh, trying to keep it together and offer the best care that they can under these impossible conditions. So as I just mentioned, over the weekend, we're looking at about 35, 37 trucks of aid getting in. Just for context, um, before this war, you know, usually about 400 trucks or so are entering Gaza each day, according to the UN's World Food Program. So these 37 um, trucks carrying everything from water to medical supplies, what difference might that make at this stage of the war in terms of health care? Well, you're absolutely right in that even before this current extremely tight siege, you know, Gaza was under blockade. And so um, even then, the number of trucks was limited, but it was in the hundreds. There would be at least 100 trucks of just fuel. And so to have the borders essentially sealed for the past two weeks, so we're already at a deficit under normal conditions. And then when you compound that with the physical devastation, the destruction of many needed materials. So for every destroyed house, destroyed hospital, destroyed school, it's not just lack of shelter, but all the resources, equipment, you know, hospital equipment, pharmaceuticals, those are also all destroyed. Um, and of course, people are running out of water. So when we have at this point less than 40 trucks two weeks in, and from, from reporting, we're seeing that these trucks will primarily be distributing only in the south. Um, as we know, Israel has issued an evacuation order for the north. Um, but that's where Gaza's main hospital, Shifa Hospital, is. That's where many um, specialized centers for health needs like cancer are. And that's where many people live. And many of these people have not left their homes because, A, they're, they're frightened of evacuating and being bombed on the route. B, they have nowhere to go. And they know that the shelters and hospitals and schools in the south are full. So if this aid is not even reaching those people in the north, I mean, from their perspective, there might as well be be nothing at all. And, uh, you know, of course, any aid is, is better than no aid. But I think we need to be realistic about what just a few trucks can do, considering these circumstances, and that we're not in a post-conflict situation. We're still having active bombardment constantly, uh, regularly. So um, these trucks are hopefully the first um, in unimpeded humanitarian access to Gaza, but that does not seem like that will be the case. Can we just take a step back before um, this most recent war? Um, as you s suggested, there have been ongoing challenges um, for hospitals and healthcare systems and for people in, in Gaza. Israel controls what gets into Gaza. Hamas runs a healthcare system inside. But can you just sort of paint a picture of what the state of healthcare was, you know, 17 days ago in Gaza? Sure. So, um, you know, since 2006, when Hamas won elections in the Gaza Strip, and there have not been elections since, um, the Strip has been under air, sea, and land blockade, as you note. And so Israel um, approves everything and every person that enters and leaves the Strip. And so you can imagine that for a healthcare system that needs constant resupplying that requires not just people to train as physicians, but requires people to train in specialties, 
um, you know, you, you kind of need unimpeded access for this. And there are certain types of healthcare equipment, especially those that use radioactive materials like PET and CT scanners that Israel bars almost entirely. And so even on a, as you know, kind of quote unquote, typical day in Gaza, which is, you know, not typical con compared to what most of us experience, there was absolute deprivation and, and, and neglect in the healthcare system based on lack of ability to import goods, um, lack of ability for people in Gaza to easily leave, to go train in some sort of medical specialty in Europe or in the Gulf or in the United States or somewhere else in North America. Um, and in 2012, actually, the United States or the United Nations, excuse me, wrote a report that said, based on current trends, water insecurity, food insecurity, um, lack of ability to build, Gaza would be, quote unquote, unlivable by 2020. Um, we're now, of course, three years past that point, and we're seeing devastation on top of five previous wars in which Gaza is never rebuilt. And so it's it's been a significantly uh, you know, deprived healthcare system that showed in healthcare uh, outcomes. So even when we compare the population of Gaza to the population in the West Bank, which is also under occupation, the citizens of Gaza report worse healthcare outcomes, lower life expectancy, higher maternal and infant mortality, um, simply because of their their healthcare system and their inability to supply uh, and train act adequately. The UN uh, Population Fund is estimating that right now inside Gaza, there are 50,000 pregnant women. 5,000 of them are set to give birth over the next month. You have, um, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, almost 16,000 um, people in Gaza who've been wounded since the airstrikes began um, just over two weeks ago. What and then you have people like who need cancer care and all kinds of regular things, like you broke your foot or anything exactly. that's just regular. What kinds of decisions is that forcing healthcare providers to make? So when we're hearing reports from providers, this is among, I think, the most difficult uh, things that they have to contend with. Because as you say, hospitals are absolutely stretched to capacity. So they are not only trying to triage you know, who may survive and who may not when people come to the hospital. Um, they are, you know, trying to sometimes save between two cases that could be savable. And so doctors are having to make incredibly difficult decisions on who is able to actually get seen at the hospital. If, as you say, you're one of these pregnant women, if you're some, one of the 9,000 people in Gaza with cancer, if you, uh, you know, get COVID or get the flu, which, you know, we're entering the winter and, and, and communi communicable and infectious diseases are going to spread because of lack of water, physicians have almost zero capacity to deal with anything aside from trauma cases that they feel they may be successful with. Um, and so all other healthcare functions for the most part have been paused, stopped, or simply cannot happen because they've run out of the medications. They've Their equipment has been destroyed or is otherwise being used. So there is a lot of extremely tough decisions being made by physicians and paramedics in Gaza um, because they're trying to save as many lives as possible with an increasingly dwindling supply. It means, may seem very early to be talking about what a recovery of a healthcare system might look at, but we have a bit of a roadmap from past uh, wars in Gaza. So how has, after the violence stops, how has the recovery process played out? How does the healthcare system get back on its feet? 
This is a really interesting uh, question at this point, because we have already seen in the past two days a level of physical uh, destruction that we have not yet seen. Something like 40% of houses have been damaged or destroyed. Um, hospitals have been damaged or destroyed. Utility infrastructure for water, electricity, and of course, the the death toll, which is now nearing, I think, something like 5,000 civilians. This surpasses even the previous most deadly war in 2014, which was a 51-day war. We've already surpassed everything, um, all indicators from that from that uh, incident. So while we have some, you know, experience with what some rebuilding of Gaza looks like, um, you know, usually when there's a ceasefire, international actors will, especially, you know, from, from Qatar and, and the Gulf states especially, they will pledge millions, if not billions of dollars to rebuild Gaza. Of course, not in all money that's pledged is actually dispersed, and that's a whole other issue. But this time feels different because the Israeli government, and specifically Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, has promised a long and difficult war. We have not even seen a ground invasion yet, which um, Israel has suggested they are ramping up for any day now or any moment now. Um, and so we know that things are still going to get worse. And if this, you know, aid is is still blocked, um, things are going to deteriorate very quickly. We're going to start seeing outbreaks of infectious disease, um, you know, cholera, dysentery. We're going to start seeing people suffering from malnutrition and from dehydration. Um, the amount of cement and sheer materials that would be needed to rebuild even part of the infrastructure is is un, unparalleled, unprecedented. And every piece of equipment, every um, you know, everything that enters Gaza has to go through weeks and months of permitting. Um, we've also seen some indications from the Israeli government that there will be some changes in the territory to Gaza. So they've they've talked about a buffer zone on the top or um, in seizing parts of the land, making the land smaller afterwards. So we don't even know what Gaza geographically may look like after mm -hmm. this. And so it's incredibly difficult at this stage um, to have any sense for what there will be to rebuild and who will be left. Um, we don't know yet if other countries will take uh, refugees from Gaza, if refugees from Gaza even want to leave. So I think we're really in unprecedented territory, even when it comes to Gaza, which in just the past over a decade, we've had five wars. We kind of tend to see some trend lines in in recovery efforts and calling for ceasefires. And all of that is really different mm -hmm. um, this round. So it's it remains to be seen. Let me ask you this. Israel has expressed concern about Hamas seizing aid that enters Gaza. So this would include things for hospitals. It's a concern that U.S. President Joe Biden underscored in his address um, this past Thursday night. What do you think needs to happen to make sure aid actually reaches the people who need it, the civilians, the people who are most affected by this current health care crisis? Well, we know that much of the aid, um, so we saw many of the trucks that entered, entered through the World Food Program, and they're entering through reputable UN agencies. Um, I think this is probably what's going to continue. I mean, there, there's some level of inspection and of trust there. Um, in terms of making sure it gets to who it who needs it inside. I, I think that this is kind of one of those situations where we 
don't fully know where people are. Um, roads are, you know, been bombed and destroyed. I think the fear, I think the difficulties rather with ensuring that aid is distributed to the parties who are the most needy to the civilians um, is, is a bit overshadowed by the fact that distribution of any kind anywhere within Gaza is extremely difficult right now. Of course, we want it to go to civilians who need it. There are UN agencies on the ground, local staff in the Gaza Strip who are ready to receive it. There's the Palestinian Red Crescent Society, which has been working with the Egyptian Red Crescent. So we know that there are agencies that have good ties with the international community that are part of UN agencies, and they are ready to receive this aid. They, the local staff, know where it needs to go. The question is, do they have the fuel? Do they have the roads? Do they have the physical safety to ensure that that aid gets there? Yara, you're a public health um, expert. You've written a book, It's an upcoming book. It's called How War Kills. And in this book, you argue that the health effects of war go beyond the immediate impacts we might think of, um, you know, explosions, gunfire, injuries from violence, but that war is also carried out through quote-unquote, structural violence. Can you expand on what you mean by that, and, and specifically within the context of the Gaza Strip? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when it comes to war, I think most of us, you know, from media, from from movies, we grow up and we see war as as bombs and tanks and snipers and guns. And that is absolutely a part of war, as we've seen this past you know few weeks in Gaza, as we've seen in Yemen, as we've seen in Syria, Ukraine, the list goes on and on. Um, structural violence is a form of violence where it's typically not one actor acting on another. Um, so some have called poverty a form of structural violence. Um, I have written in my work that the medical permit system that limits who in Gaza can leave for medical care, um, the permits issued by Israel are a form of structural violence. Siege and blockade are structural violence. Holding food and medicine and water and electricity from a civilian population, half of whom are children, are structural violence. People will die from these effects. And yet there is not a, a gun or a tank involved. Mm. And, and I also think, you know, structural violence can come in the form of militarism, where for those of us in countries that aren't at war, um, where we feel relatively safe physically, um, because of the national security priorities, we are also funneling money into 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 wars overseas, while our health domestically is also suffering as well. And that is a form of structural violence as well. We're only, um, you know, just over two weeks into this war, and the Israeli Prime Minister has promised a long and difficult one. So much violence, so much injury and death has happened in the past two-plus weeks. From where you sit, what needs to happen now to make sure civilians get the critical health care that they need? This is a, a great question, and I'm going to echo here the World Health Organization, the United Nations Development Program, the Population Fund, uh, UNICEF, and the World Food Program, who have called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. They require immediate and unrestricted humanitarian access throughout Gaza. We need to reinstate water and electricity into the Gaza Strip. Um, we need to re engage with the principles of international humanitarian law that protects civilians and does not allow for disproportionate response. We need advocacy on behalf of the humanitarian and healthcare workers in Gaza who are working 
24 hour shifts, uh, you know, fighting for their own lives. We need the medical community around the world to support and advocate for them. Um, and we need, you know, first and foremost, this, this ceasefire. And then, uh, you know, there's no, there, there has not been a military solution to this in the past. It's unclear why that would be different now. Yeah, I appreciate your perspective on this this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yara Asi is an assistant professor of global health and informatics at the University of Central Florida and director of the Palestinian Program for Health and Human Rights. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Zadie Smith shot to fame with her debut novel, White Teeth, 23 years ago. That book was set in her North London neighborhood of Wilsdon, and it introduced us all to a writer who bridges humor and rich, complicated characters to explore themes of identity, belonging, and lack thereof. Those themes have pervaded much of Zadie's writing that has followed, including in her latest novel, which is called The Fraud. It returns to Wilsdon. This time, though, it's in the 19th century and a real-life trial that raises many questions about truth and fiction. And I spoke with Zadie Smith about her new book and more a few weeks ago. This story uh, of the fraud involves a man who claims to be the rightful heir to a grand estate, his staunch defender who's a black man who was enslaved in Jamaica, and an abolitionist woman who plays housekeeper to her novelist cousin. But at the center of all this is that real trial that took place. Tell me more about that trial itself. Um, Well, you know, everything in the book is true. And so this part is the craziest part, but it is also completely true. Um, It's about... uh, rich Catholic aristocrat called Sir Roger Titchborn, who went missing at sea, actually en route to Jamaica when he was about 24. And his mother refused to believe that he was dead. She was kind of credibly upset and sent adverts all over the world um, offering money for his return. Um, And some of those adverts reached Australia, where a man called Arthur Orton, who was a working-class butcher from Wapping, um, who looked nothing like Roger. He was 300 pounds. Roger was tall and skinny. Uh, Roger grew up speaking French. Uh, Arthur Orton did not speak French. Uh, Roger was posh. Arthur was working class, etc. But Arthur turned up with Andrew Bogle in tow, who had once worked for this family, and said, I'm your son. And the mother said, for whatever reason, I believe you. And then promptly died, setting off a very long court case. And what was the appeal for you, Zadie, in using this material from real life to write fiction, to write a novel? I think I'm very interested when the irrational appears in politics. I mean, obviously, we've just lived through a period where the irrational appeared in politics quite heavily. Um, But this case, it was a kind of extraordinary moment of like left wing populism. That's what I call it, because uh, these two people went through the courts with a story that I, mean, I think most rational people would say is obviously a lie, but created this gigantic groundswell of support in England, particularly amongst working class people of all kinds and of, of many political stripes. And they were coming together with this feeling of anger that the courts had never really treated working class people, never mind, of course, black people, fairly. And that these two men, with their obvious lie, had come to, you know, get justice with a lie. That's the best way I can put it get what they deserve, but with something that was obviously fake. And the the people loved it and created a two-year court case out of it. Hmm. And so one of the themes and social issues was that of England's place in the global slave trade and its relationship to Jamaica, who was colonized um, by by the British. Right. 
Give me the context a little bit more than what I just said there. I mean, the English relationship with Jamaica goes back to Cromwellian days. It was a kind of massive land grab. So Jamaica was given to a few Cromwellian soldiers as a kind of reward for their action in the Civil War. So it was a long process. But um, at the point my novel starts, plantation slavery there is beginning to break down from a series of uh, revolts on the part of the slaves over and over again. There were these enormous mutinies um, and also by a, a very large abolitionist movement in England and an even broader movement of working class and middle class people boycotting sugar or refusing cotton. And this kind of wide solidarity was what interested me in writing the book. Like, How do such enormous unjust situations end? What does it take? You know, one of the interesting things within that context is how much people know about or care to pay attention to slavery. It all varies quite a bit in your story. Right. What were you trying to explore there? I mean, that's been my experience, I guess, since I was young. I, I remember the first Iraq war um, all the way up to the climate crisis now, that there are always a minority of heroic activists, people who are absolutely aware of what is happening who scream it from the rooftops, who put their bodies in the way of power and who try to change things. But that group is very small, always. And then there is a slightly broader group of what I would call armchair chatterers, <laughs> who are the kind of, you know, middle class, intellectual class who read the newspapers, seem to feel strongly, but it's mostly rhetoric. It's just talk back and forth. And then there's even a larger group of people who pay very little attention and don't think of it one way or another. Um, and that's repeated, you know, over and over again. And when I was writing this novel, I, I wanted to give time to all those different constituents because they all interest me. Hmm. And this book, of course, is, is personal to you and your, your family as well, Zadie. Your mom's from Jamaica. Your father was from England. But I understand before you wrote this, like so many of us, you, you didn't know as much about slavery in Jamaica, say, as compared to slavery in the United States. What did it say to you, like to yourself, that you didn't know much about this history? You weren't taught this as a child. I feel a great sadness about it now, but I, I think it's a double loss. You don't only lose the history of slavery, which is fascinating apart from anything else. You also lose this tradition of working class activism opposing it, which I think is perhaps even more to the point if we're talking about silences in English schools that uh, one of the fears, I think, was always about teaching a politics that might actually function. So it's a kind of double loss. But, um, but I also maybe take issue with the idea of it being personal. Of course, at a sentimental level, these are my people and this is my mother's country. But I, I think I object to the idea that this is not everybody's business. Hmm. I, I would consider the Holocaust my business. I would consider the exploitations in Liberia by Americans my business. It's all my business. It's human business, particularly when it involves oppression on this scale. Yeah, you've talked about this before, and um, that's a fair point you're making there, and, and separating the personal from the private, right? The, right? the personal private life from the task of writing. Why is that so important to you? How do you see that? Like you, you've, you've said this many times, and you, you write this way, and you've made this deliberate choice. How do you do that, and why do you do that? Because the, the struggles in front of us are too large. So solidarity is essential. I need to be able to make analogies and partnerships across all kinds of divides. And I think that's part of the problem, maybe for younger people, is that we have this kind of weak, apolitical idea of the human or humanism, that it's some kind of liberal, wishy-washy nothing. 
But what what we're against are global oppressions. And when you're dealing with things like AI or environmental collapse, you really do need a picture of the human, a collective picture of the human, which doesn't mean you have to erase differences between people. I'm perfectly aware of the difference between you and me or me and my husband or me and my children or me and the stranger across the street. But I have to believe that it is possible to make pragmatic and useful political alliances with people. You're listening to The Sunday Magazine, and I'm speaking with Zadie Smith about her new novel. It's called uh, The Fraud. Zadie, as you talked about just off the top, many of these characters, this story, The Fraud, uh, these people were real. The story is real. The case at the center of it happened. You said one thing that you particularly have enjoyed in writing this is the idea that fiction is a place where two things can be true at the same time. Explain that more to me. I mean, I, I that seems true of the real world too, right? There are many truths at the same time, depending right. on perspectives. Yeah. I mean, in the case of the Tichborn claimant, two things are being stated at once, right? So a working class man is claiming to be an aristocrat and his defense is, and the people's defense is, you never give people like us a fair turn in the courts, but people like us means working class people. So if he's working class, he can't be Sir Roger Tichborn. That logic you know, will drive a rational person mad. But I think we saw something similar in Trump's case, right? He was there for the people. He was on their side. Supposedly, he was a billionaire, working class man in their mind, a white collar billionaire. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But I think it's important when you're dealing with like mass movements to realize that not all politics is rational. I guess that's the best way to put it, that desire is a big part of politics. And when we're thinking about those kind of middle-class intellectual political commentators in their armchairs, that's one thing they consistently get wrong, that it's not always rational. And that particularly when people suffer injustice over a long period, um, as they did in the courts in England in the 1800s, their response to that may not be rational. But what they're asking for is absolutely rational, justice. And so when you think of those echoes, and today you you mentioned Trump, and, you know, in this book, there are conspiracy theories abounding. Is the point being made is that this has happened throughout history, not that that Trump or someone else like him is sort of this anomaly, which is sometimes put out there? No, I think people like Trump utilize the tools of fiction. They always have. The other example in my mind a lot was OJ, who was a similar kind of contradictory figure a white black man, basically, economically and personally. Um, and those kind of impossible paradoxes uh, have have an attraction, I think, to the public. They break through this kind of binary uh, red-blue politics and they do something different. And so they can be very dangerous sometimes. That kind of irrationality can be dangerous in the body politic. And when I was reading about the Tichborn case, you know, quite often, you know, I like to think of myself quite rational. It was hard to understand why so many people would put so much time and energy into this man, you know, creating political movements and whole newspapers and dedicating their lives and sending so much money to him. But the longer I looked at it, I thought they did, in fact, achieve something. You know, they did in some way transform the British courts. They forced the British to look at these courts and see how irrational they were, how unjust they were, um, how badly the lawyers uh, performed. So it, it did create a change. And it also maybe dramatized something about Britain, because the people involved in that court case are one previously enslaved man, one working class white man from the underclass, and lawyer was an Irishman from Cork. 
who was struck off from the bar because he behaved so outrageously throughout the case. But in a way, this case staged for England its colonial situation, right? These are the three people we don't want to think about. The black man, the working classes and the Irish. That was the whole problem. So the court case put it in front of them, made the British look at the situation they had created. And one might argue that those are still the characters of modern life. Right. I mean, our relation, the British relation with those three parties is transformed. Of course, there are no more slaves. And now we have such a thing as the commons, which the Victorians created. We have schools, we have hospitals, we have public parks, we have places where working people can exist. And that is part of the legacy of the Victorian period. And Ireland is no longer caught in an absolute civil war. But none of those three situations are absolutely perfected. No, it's still a long way to go. And you talked about this in other interviews as well, Zadie, about um, that, that don't read this, don't understand this, that a passage of time, the passage of time necessarily equates progress. It does in some areas and it doesn't in others. I mean, I, I really did feel when I was writing this book and also living in what is basically a Victorian neighbourhood, I stopped thinking of Victorians as backward oppressors who knew nothing. And I started thinking, thank you for my park. <laughs> thank you for my kid's school. Thank you for the hospital that my brother rushed to with an eye infection recently from the 1830s. And realising that my present government is about as likely to build new hospitals and new schools and new parks for working people as fly to the moon, you know? Hmm. So there are areas in which the Victorians had more progressive ideas about the commons, about the public, than the present Tory government could imagine. There's another um, point in the story where uh, one of the characters tells Eliza, um, quote, this is the quote, it really is a very annoying habit of yours, Eliza. You become most fond of people at the very moment that they should be most severely condemned. Why does she tend that way? Um, that was a little bit of a reference to my to my friend, Devorah, who the book is dedicated to, who certainly does tend that way. She's a moral philosopher, and maybe that's where moral philosophy uh, lends, <laughs> lends your mind. But I'm sure I have a bit of it myself. I mean, I, I know lots of people really enjoy condemning people. It's just not an emotion that brings me much pleasure. I, I just don't get off on it. I don't know, I don't know what other way to put it. I, I get plenty angry. But uh, condemnation is not a practical political feeling for me. That's interesting in the times in which we find ourselves, where people seem to be condemning all kinds of people that they don't uh, agree with, where we're very siloed and polarized. It's enjoyable for people. Yeah. And, and, you, and you use, but you want no part of that and, you know, say, like, that's just not me. No, I, there's an old Jamaican saying which says, uh, finger never say look here and say look yonder. <laughs> <laughs> which means which means people really like to point out other people's flaws and are not so keen on their own. Um, and that is both a kind of, uh, you know, funny Jamaican moral principle, but it's also politically to me very important. Like, of course, it's important to point out injustice, but you have to also point out the ones that are inconvenient to you. And the ones that are inconvenient to you, I mean, I often would say to my students, that, you know, if you watch the labour supply chain of an iPhone, that is one of the most immoral labor practices in this world. But nobody wants to talk about that because it's convenient. It's in your hand and you use it day and night. It's very easy to point out the injustices which involve you making no change whatsoever. So I, I think that's what interests me. Politics which is actually engaged and which I see in the 19th century, people fighting for things which actually inconvenience them a great deal. This was an enormous system of racialized capital which made 
enormous amount of money and most people wanted to keep that money but some people a few heroic people and some not so heroic people and some just oh, generally okay people decided to divest themselves of that capital and that's not so easy to do and is that where you kind of see hope or find hope in 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 this day and age, Zadie, it's that small group of people who, with conviction, who are, you know, yelling from the rafters, um, trying to do stuff. Yeah, they begin it. Nothing happens without Frederick Douglass and nothing happens without XR Rebellion and nothing happens without those people who were dismissed, particularly in my country, as the extreme. But they can't do it alone. It takes a lot of hands on deck. And they don't all have to be perfect hands. Hmm. You mentioned, um, you know, the likening of the attitudes to toward climate change in our contemporary society and, and extinction rebellion. So what do you see in that that gives you hope? Um, I mean, it is easier sometimes to feel hopeless. Those young people give me hope. Sometimes, I mean, just even on this tour, everywhere I go, there's a plastic bottle in every car, on every stage, in everybody's hands. In every, I, sometimes it just blows my mind that we're still selling plastic bottles. I can't. I, I really can't understand, I don't know, it seems, it seems to be symbolic of our politics somehow, that we often don't see the wood for the trees. Like, it will seem absolutely remarkable to our children that in 2023, we still haven't banned them. Hmm. Like, we haven't even done the basics. I remember um, reading White Teeth um, when it came out, and I was in Southeast Asia, and I'm just telling you this because you mentioned plastic bottles. And I remember, because that's when plastic bottles really became all the rage, right? We we're all traveling right. and we had plastic bottles. And I'm like, but before that, we didn't have, like, this is a very no, modern thing, plastic I, bottles. That's the thing. And that, that's the other thing that I feel might be the one kind of political aspect of writing a historical novel is that it's really important to remember right now that things were not always this way. I remember I was about 11, maybe a bit younger, when my mom first came home from the shops, from the Saturday shop with a plastic bottle of water, and we laughed at her. We thought it was the funniest mm. thing we had ever seen. You paid for water in a bottle? Are you out of your mind? And we thought it was one of her aspiring middle-class affectations. Like, we <laughs> couldn't believe it. And fast forward two years, there was one in the hand of every human on the planet. I mean, it's insane. And that's pure capital. No one needs to hydrate that much, dude. We all <laughs> used to hydrate before. <laughs> We just got, we went to a cafe and someone would give you a glass of water if you asked for it. That was how people lived. It was normal. <laughs> you say this like that might surprise people. Like we just drank out of glasses. It was just, it was, every it day. was not <laughs> a big deal. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you about labels because again, White Teeth 20 years ago, um, the times are different now. You're different now is, a, is 80. I'm different now. But at the core of that book are the questions, and much of your writing asks these questions about identity, belonging, or, or lack thereof. And again, I would posit that we live in a time where we're just slapping on labels on everybody, um, you know, and just trying to reduce them to these labels. Have you come to any better, if I can put it that way, understanding of the idea of labels in, in modern society? No, you know, I, I think the kids should do whatever they want to do in terms of naming themselves and whatever they want to name themselves. I don't mind about any of that. It's cool. But I just also need, simultaneously with that, a collective consciousness. That's all. Like, I, whatever anybody feels in their intimate lives, however they want to describe themselves, seems to me, you know, part of the art of life. It's a beautiful thing. And it also, of course, it can be part of the fight for rights. You need language to 
to be counted by the law. That's just a fact of civil disobedience and civil action. But what's coming at us right now, particularly, I mean, I've been reading a lot about AI in the kind of broader sense as a, as a labor problem, will require some vision of the human. We, we just need it. It'll need a radical vision of the human that includes many, many, many people. So it's a kind of bracketing. And I don't find that an impossible thing to do. You can bracket your intimate life, your ancestry, your history, your sexuality. I do it all the time. But when it comes to stepping up to the barricades to fight something this large, you're going to have to swallow, swallow your pride and join a collective action in which your individual identity is not that important in that moment. Sadie Smith, it's been really special to talk to you and I appreciate you making time for us. Thank you. Appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. That was the wonderful author, Zadie Smith. She has a new novel out. It's called The Fraud. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. So in case you missed it, there's been some big news from one of Canada's greatest athletes. Christine Sinclair announced she will retire from international play in soccer at the end of this year. And the Team Canada captain from Burnaby, BC, exits the world stage with just a gobsmacking record. She is the global all-time leading scorer, men or women, with 190 international goals. She's played in six World Cups. She's been named Athlete and Female Athlete of the Year by Canadian sports journalists, voted Canada Soccer Player of the Year 14 times. That's done by coaches in the media. And she's earned one gold and two bronze medals at the Olympics for Canada. I was lucky enough to speak with Christine Sinclair last year when she put out her memoir about her influence on the game of soccer and what her life might look like after hanging up her cleats. We'll see if it all happens, but here's what she hinted at. I don't have to tell you, the popularity of soccer in Canada has exploded. It's bigger than hockey for people who might <laughs> doubt the explosion at soccer. And again, I, I know you're, you're, you're quite humble, and, and, but you and your teammates bear some responsibility in the explosion of soccer <laughs> because people sign up when they see people like you do wonderful <laughs> things. And, you know, we talked about the young athletes looking up to you and why you wrote this book, and that, that was all the motivating factors. What is your hope for the next generation of girls that come into the sport? I mean, the easy answer is that it's in a better place than when I joined the team, that the battles that myself and my teammates are having to fight won't be battles anymore. I'm sure there'll be new ones. Uh, I, I think that's just part of women's sports. I think it will always be a battle. But here in Canada, I want to see a professional league. I think it's unacceptable that we don't have one. I think we're the only country in the top 20 or 25 in the world rankings that doesn't have a professional environment for their women to play in. And I'm concerned for the next generation if it doesn't happen, because I see all these other countries throwing all this support and funding behind professional teams, behind their national teams. And I like you look at your England's, your Spain's, France, Germany, like I worry that we will get passed by if we don't change things. Create that. Yeah. You have so many big milestones, right? The Olympics, <laughs> the World Cup appearance for you. People are wondering, I, I know you're playing in Portland, but they're wondering what's next for you. What are you weighing right now as you make perhaps a big decision for yourself? I will definitely stay involved in the sport. So whether that's coaching, whether that's helping grow a professional league, whether that's staying in Portland and helping develop that culture more, we'll see. But when I am done playing 
I'll be around. Yeah, you you spilled some beans in your book. Um, you said after you retire from playing, you might take up assistant coaching. You you just spilled that for yep. us too, right? But you also said a doggy daycare or sports bar are appealing to you. Yeah, I'm just no. I mean, because you have to understand, um, my life has been so scheduled. Yeah, and fair. Since I joined the national team at 16, where there are days where I'm like, I'm gonna do nothing to do with soccer and I have those moments and I, sure. but, uh, and I have a dog, so there's the doggy daycare part, but no, I mean, I will <laughs> stay involved in soccer for sure. <laughs> That's my conversation with Christine Sinclair from uh, last November. You can stream the whole thing at cbc.ca slash Sunday. Christine Sinclair is retiring, she says, from international soccer at the end of this year, but will play one more season of professional soccer with the Portland Thorns. And since we spoke, Christine and others' dreams of a Canadian pro women's league is coming closer to reality. She and her former national teammate, Diana Matheson, are working on launching one in 2025, featuring eight teams. So far, three franchises have been announced, Vancouver, Calgary, and Toronto. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 16 days since Hamas militants attacked Israel and Israel began retaliating on Gaza, there's been fighting in the West Bank and elsewhere as well. More than 6,000 people have been killed. This Israel-Hamas conflict is the latest in a long series of clashes and wars in the region. Each time one of those takes place, civilians are left grieving the loss of loved ones. The impact of those losses endures. It changes lives. It changes people. The Parent Circle Families Forum is a group of bereaved Palestinians and Israelis who have lost immediate family members to conflict. The group focuses on reconciliation and dialogue as a path to a sustained peace. Bassam Aramin and Ayelet Harel are both members of this group. Hello to both of you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Hello. Good morning. It's been a very difficult time um, these past number of weeks. Ayelet, you're um, near Tel Aviv. Can you just kind of tell us what these past couple of weeks have been like for you? Well, you know, I was hearing uh, a little bit before we went on the, the other issues you have in your, on your program. And I said to myself, wow, there's a, I, I remember that we had a life that was more, you know, a normal sort of life, mm-hmm. even though every time here it's not normal. But uh, as, as all Israeli, I woke up on uh, 6.30 in the morning on the Saturday of the 7th of October to Siren and we ran to the to the shelter, and I came back and I opened television and said to me, "What happened? What happened? What, what what's what happened? You know, we were not like sometimes there's tension. We know that something will happen, and we were opening television, not believing our eyes what what's hmm. what's been happening. You know, just like um, really, we we never imagined that such a catastrophe could happen here. Can you yes. tell me as the the days have sort of gone on from that initial attack, sort of what the, 
what sort of your feelings have been? Like, how are, how are you feeling? What emotions are coming to the surface for you? Well, I, I, I must say that I'm, I'm very sad. I'm very sad and I'm very afraid. I, I'm sad for the terrible um, loss of life and the, the terrible stories we hear every day on the news. I'm just, I'm just watching and crying every every evening when I see the, the, the news and the terrible story. I, I also see um, the story about Gaza. You know, I, I try to watch other uh, international television to, to see what's happening there and I'm devastated. And I, and I look what's happening in the West Bank and I'm so afraid for uh, for what the next actions will be. I'm so afraid that the, a war will open, you know, start with Lebanon. And and there's you know I have three children. I look at their eyes and I see they're 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 scared and they're mm-hmm. sad, and uh, it's really hard. And of course, I'm also worried about our friends, uh, the Palestinian and our friends. Yeah. Um, yes. I'm I'm sorry for all of that. Um, Bassem, you're in Jericho, which is uh, in the West Bank, not far from Jerusalem. What about for you? What has your life been like these past couple of weeks? And what is sort of surfacing for you? Uh, thank you. Uh, in fact, just to say, it's not a conflict between Hamas and Israel. It's a conflict between the Palestinians and Israel, which is, goes for decades. Now, this time, it's with Hamas. Uh, to be honest, uh, we always expect that one day something will blow up. It's not new, but yeah, we were very surprised with the like amount of attack. That's right. Uh, unfortunately, people dying, civilians dying, innocent people dying, babies dying. Uh, and uh, we are very busy to say who is to, bl- to blame. Now we need to stop this bloodshed. It's it's a disaster. People are dying. You know, always we hear that when someone die, a person, it's a disaster. When thousands of people die, we need to think about it. Uh, we need to save those those children, those women, those kids who have no safe place for themselves. In fact, if you ask the Palestinians from the other side why, they don't ask why, because this is our daily life. So I believe the disaster which happened to the Israelis in the past two weeks, especially in this uh, round, uh, it gives them maybe the a little bit to think about the fear that the Palestinians mm-hmm. live in since decades, which is also a disaster. I, I mean, I think civilians being lost in any conflict on any side is, is yeah. and I think you would both agree, is an absolute tragedy. And so, so sadly, and I'm so sorry to both of you, that you've both lost family members in this. So, um, Bassam, you lost your 10-year-old daughter. This was in 2007, a uh, clash between Palestinian youth and Israeli border or forces in your in your area. And, and your daughter, Abir, was in the area just buying some candy when she was shot in the head by Israeli forces. I know you think about her every day. But when flare-ups like this one happen, and we see innocent people, children, being killed, what do you think about? Absolutely, you are right. Even to see... Uh... Uh, Israeli kids have been killed at the age of Abir, 10 years. It's come back again and again to see all those kids, Palestinians, it's the same. Just to make one connection, a correction, sorry, it was no clashes between the Israeli uh, soldiers and the Palestinian kids. It was kids 9.30 in the morning, it was no demonstrations. Uh, but it doesn't matter, who cares? Uh, uh, we are lose our kids like for nothing. You know, in the West Bank, there is no Hamas. They didn't rule. 
and 85 up to date since two weeks who are living in this tragedy always and always. When we see someone lose his kid or his brother or father, it comes back to us. It's very painful again, again, for me, for Ayeli, for the 700 members of the parent circle and for thousands of Israelis and Palestinians. We are human beings. We share the same kind of pain and we want to do our best to protect other families from being under the same uh, pain forever. And Ayelet, you lost your brother, Yuval. He was an Israeli soldier. This is 1982 during the first Lebanon War. You were just 16 years old at the time. So as you said, you've been turning on the TV and, and, and watching this. And again, I know you think of Yuval every day, but it must take you back to the very deep personal initial days as well, yeah? Well, uh, as Bassam said, uh, you know, um, um, every time that somebody, uh, that I hear someone even in, in, in uh, a soldier or just a civilian, or it always brings back, it always brings back. I'm thinking of the families uh, that lost so many family members in, in one, you know, in, in one day. And I'm also thinking, seeing the, the, the pictures from Gaza and seeing the, the people losing so many family members said, How, you know, I lost my brother one and, and just this changed my life. This been the the most painful thing I have ever been through. So so this is really beyond imagination and and the, you know this this kind of of a of a of a um, catastrophe makes you think about all your beliefs because you know a lot of people even um in, in Israel are now you know they even around me in my family which always supported my um, my initiatives and, and my activities are like uh, now saying, well, you were, uh, you know, you were, you were wrong. Um, what helped? Three days before the, on October 4th, I'm also active in an organization of women called Women Wage Peace. And we had a, a, a big event in, in the Dead Sea of hundreds of, of mothers of Israelis and Palestinians calling for peace, you know, three days after. So people are telling me, what 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 does that help? And 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 I don't have any other answer. So, so tell me, believing, yeah, go ahead. Except believing that I don't believe that the war will 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 do any good. I don't see how this conflict will. You know, the Palestinians will not vanish. We will not vanish. We must stop this. This is this, and, and I don't know how many more lives now. Will you know? They're telling everything. What will happen now? How many more lives is this conflict will? You know, it's like a big whale of, of so much blood. Let me ask you this, and I want to ask both of you, but Ayala, you know, there is, as you just said, your friends and family are saying, like, look what's happened. There's so much anger, understandable, on all sides of this right now. It is people, you know, it's easy to let anger to override everything else, feelings, perspectives, but you have chosen to do something else. So tell me about how you've channeled your anger into saying, look, look, we need peace. Um, listen, as you said, I was 16. My, my brother was killed in a war. That's true. But he, he was killed by Palestinian. You know, the, the conflict is, since 1982, we're talking more, more than 40 years. This for, for me, this has been the conflict of all my life, throughout the whole of my life. And, um, I always tell in all kinds of, of dialogue meetings, that I always tell the story that about me a few weeks after my brother was killed, we went, uh, the, the army took us to a place. My, my parents wanted to see where he was killed. And we got to into Lebanon and we went to the, to the refugee camp where he was killed by Palestinian uh, armors. 
Um, it's called Enel Chilwe, and um, and it was the, I never been to a refugee camp. I was a child, and it was it was all ruined because the Israeli Air Force had ruined the place, and and people were living there, and I saw children living in these ruins, and I told myself they are also paying the the price of the conflict of the of the war. There are no there are no winners at war. Uh, you know, so many Israelis want to understand this. I, I really understand. I think the Palestinians also, they want to win the war. But I don't, the, there are no winners in this war, except more pain. The only way to win the war is to is to to stop the war, to stop the bloodshed, to, mm. to, have, to have an agreement. Bassem, your path to, to this work has been long. As a teen, you were part of a group that threw hand grenades at Israeli soldiers. You served seven years in jail for that. After your release, you began working on peace initiatives. You, you changed your journey. This was even before losing your own, own daughter. Talk to me about that choice, how you redirected yourself toward peace. Like, was there a moment where you said, I, I want to work towards this? No, in fact, uh, why we are fighting? We are fighting to live in freedom and peace. This is the point. It's not something new. But to be logic, to understand, to look back to the history, always I said that we are not the first and unfortunately not the last conflict on earth. Where is the Romans today? What happened? The American conflict, the Canadian even conflict, the Australian conflict, South Africa, Northern Ireland, Germany and Israel. Always I said that the Palestinians didn't kill six million Israelis and the Israelis didn't kill six million Palestinians. In spite of that, there is a German ambassador in Tel Aviv and there is an Israeli ambassador in Berlin. It means in the end, we need to sit down and negotiate. In the end, we need to recognize the humanity of each other. In the end, the Israelis need to recognize that the Palestinians, they are not in a rented land. It's their homeland. They need to live in peace and security and freedom, exactly like them. When we respect each other, then we start to talk as human beings. So in the end, we need to sit down to recognize that we have the right to exist, both of us. When I understand that, I start to work uh, as a peace activist towards those ideas, to see the other side, to meet the other side, to recognize the humanity uh, in the other side. Then we became in the same side. The other side now, people who don't want peace and people who are not ready to pay the price of peace. Your group has received some criticism. You worked in um, Israeli schools for some 20 years, and then in August, Israeli's Ministry of Education banned your group from operating in schools. Um, this followed complaints that your group disparages the IDF, the Israeli military, the Israeli Defense Forces, and that it's unacceptable to compare the loss of someone in a terror attack or an Israeli soldier to that of someone killed in an Israeli defensive action. Ayala, what do you say to that? Well, yes, we were in a, in a long struggle before the, what happened. I don't know how we'll change that. Um, listen, uh, um, we know that in, in a very long conflicts like the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts, um, um, the, na- the nations and the people are trying to to survive it by by telling by um, building the, the narrative of, of each one. And you can see now even the the, the narratives is, is being the conflict and the narrative even of, of what happened two weeks ago is 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 there's a war in the narrative yes and and in the narrative each side uh feels that you know they they are the right side they are the they are for justice they're the good people they are the 
Uh, the other side is 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 the is a terrible person. There are terrible people. They're not even human. As as Basam said, you know, to to recognize the human humanity of the other. So. In the past years, and especially since the the government, the right wing government that started here in January, um, there there has been more and more dehumanizing of Palestinian, and each Palestinian now is uh, uh, even before uh, the October seventh, each Palestinian is uh, that is killed is probably a, a terrorist, and we should not hear their stories. And uh, now I believe it will be, become much more. Difficult because now you know the Israelis are seeing um, almost all Palestinian. It's very hard, you know. People are trying to see the cannot see the other side now at all. I hope that will change eventually, but uh, I think this is what happens that each side, you know, uh, tries to to build its uh, um, immunity by 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 making the other side like the an animal or all these kind. And um, and I, I I must say that the, the activity we did in schools were so um, there there's such impact because it it was the first time that Israeli children um, met uh, a Palestinian, hmm. and also I've been in many dialogue meetings before in the past years in Palestine talking to Palestinian young ones, and for them again it was the first time they met an Israeli who was not a soldier or a settler and just listen to him, and it's also difficult for them to hear. My story, as much as it's difficult for the Israeli children to hear some story, but this is so important, and I hope I hope uh, we can get back to this uh, one time sometime. Yeah, maybe now it's also you know maybe such a crisis will be an opportunity for change. I I hope so. And so, Basam, you know, the group is called uh, has the word dialogue on it. Dialogue. This is this is the key, as you both see it, um, as part of the work you do. So. 16 days into this, I'm sure you're, some of your friends, some of the people you know are, are like Ayelet says, like very dug into their perspective. What are the conversations you're having with people who are grieving, people who are hurt? How do you, ha- how do you start that dialogue? Absolutely. I agree with the Ayelet word by word. Uh, it's very difficult. It's become very tough. And especially when uh, uh, some, like the Zay government, the recent one, consider that our message is something dangerous. This is we know that we are dangerous because we are changing uh, their perspective. So it's very difficult, in fact. But always, I said, unfortunately, with all those victims and kids and babies, and oh, I think and we... blood, uh, we will never meet your beloved one again. It's over. Hmm. You need to be stronger to try to think for another way how to build more bridge, how to survive, how to protect your family. Uh, otherwise, you will die, maybe not physically, but your hatred and your anger will kill you. You have no other way. We know that we have the right to live and to exist. At the same time, we recognize the other side, that you have the right to live and to exist. So always, I said, we fight each other for uh, Jerusalem. We kill each other for Jerusalem, but we meet each other under the ground of Jerusalem. Hmm. And I don't know if Jerusalem know who we are. It's up to us to decide to live by side or together. Well, unfortunately, as long as the Israeli occupation continues, we will continue to sacrifice the blood of our kids from both sides. We are both Israelis and Palestinians victims to this occupation. When it's end, there is no reason to kill each other. There is no reason to fight each other. We can talk, we can shout even, 
no one will die. Ayelet, um, this these cycles of violence, as you both say, um, nothing new to the part of the world um, that you live in. Five wars in Gaza, two in Lebanon, violence in the West Bank, elsewhere. You say we need peace. What would that peace look like for you? Um, first of all, I must say that, you know, I don't have all the answers um, now. It's it's too early times. And, and uh, I must say that, you know, the, the, the horror that uh, Hamas did is... Uh, is, is unjustified in any way. And I'm also thinking that some of, of, of the settlers uh, are there, that are doing not, not on such scale, uh, but, but a very ongoing, yes, horror. And of course, what's happening in Gaza now, which is catastrophe. Um, so, so it's really hard to talk now about how do I see the future? Uh, how would that peace? I mean, I, 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 you know, when we meet Israeli and Palestinian and, and the, also, the, we have a summer camp of over the children, and we see them meet and 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 uh, and you know work together. It seems so so possible, you know. Hmm. Um, and also, you see, even inside Israel, which is the situation is not easy, but you see, like in hospitals and other, you see people are just being good to each other. Then you see, you say, okay, it's possible. But I I don't have now all the answers. I mean, I don't believe that the uh, I, I know that we're going to be in even harder times now and uh, I, and I don't believe in, in inside my heart I don't believe that will do any good but also I understand there's like so much you know um, um, big forces that are like sort of like using us as tools in their in their game hmm. um in the in the global game so um but but I do hope I do believe that eventually we will have to recognize that both nations are, are living here and they'll both have the right to live in freedom and independently. And I don't know, I, I do believe that, that there's, you know, I, this is the only future I can, I can imagine for my children, I, I, unless, you know, otherwise that what am I, what am I, uh, what am I host for them? You know, we are already not that young, but the, the, my, my children are young. And but some children and but some has, a, a, you know, grandchildren. So what is their future? So we must hold to this idea. I appreciate both of you so much for the work you do and for, for talking with me this do, morning. Do you want to ask me the same question? Sure. Do you, if you want to answer it, Bassam, we have a bit of time. Yes, please. Of course, it's the same, but to make it a little bit simple, I agree, of course, with the idea. A piece for me is to send my kids to their school and get them back safe. Hmm. To be in a safe environment, to live in social justice and dignity, even in Halifax or Toronto. Well, thank you both. Again, I, I just so appreciate listening to both of you. I think it gives a lot of people hope of what a future might look like. Um, I know it's difficult thank times. Thank you so much thank for, you. for having us. Thank you both. Thank you. Bus Take care. Bye-bye. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye you bye. too, Bassam. Bye-bye. Bassam Aramin and Ayala Tarel are with the group, the Parent Circle Families Forum. It's also known as Israeli-Palestinian Bereaved Families for Reconciliation and Peace. This is the Sunday Magazine podcast featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, October 22nd on CBC Radio. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. An Indigenous community displaced only to strike oil but just when it seemed their fortunes were turning, a deeper betrayal 
Dozens of members of the Osage Nation in Oklahoma were murdered in the 1920s, and the deaths went ignored by law enforcement for years. It's a true story, one that was turned into a book in 2017, and now it's been made into a Hollywood movie by Martin Scorsese. Killers of the Flower Moon opens in theaters in Canada this weekend. The film is based on journalist David Grant's book by the same name, and David was helped in his research by members of the Osage Nation who had family connections to the deaths, including the current Osage chief, Jeffrey Standing Bear, whose great-grandfather was chief during that time. David and Chief Standing Bear, hello to you. Hello. Thank you. David, let's start by just getting some background here for people who don't know this event, these events, this story. What happened? Yeah, so um, the Osage have been driven off uh, over centuries off their ancestral lands, uh, more than 100 million acres. And eventually they were confined uh, to a reservation in northeast Oklahoma. Most whites had kind of considered this territory worthless because it was rocky and infertile. Um, and those sage thought, you know, a chief had stood up and said, you know, our people will be happy there because whites will finally leave us alone. And then uh, it turned out that this land was sitting upon uh, some of the largest reserves of oils then ever discovered in the United States. And each uh, Osage on the tribal role was given a head right, which was essentially a share in this mineral trust. And gradually, as more oil was tapped, their wealth grew until in the year uh, 1923 alone, they received what will be worth today more than $400 million. And they become among the wealthiest people per capita in the world. And uh, they lived in large houses. They had servants, some of whom were white. And then they began to die under these very mysterious and sinister circumstances. There were poisonings. There were shootings. There was even a bombing. Uh, and this period became known as the Osage Reign of Terror. What was being done about the killings as they happened? Because they didn't happen all at once, as you say. Well, many of the Osage are, uh, were crusading for justice and uh, going to the authorities with what evidence they collected, demanding investigations. And yet because of deep prejudice at the time, uh, and because there was widespread corruption and complicity in law enforcement, these crimes were ignored. And even a few of those who dared to try to investigate the case or get help, they themselves were killed. There was one man who went to Washington, D.C., whom the Osage had sent to try to get federal authorities to look into these cases. He checked into a boarding house and he had received a telegram from Oklahoma that said, be careful. And he left the boarding house that night and he was abducted. And his body was found in a culvert uh, the next morning, and he'd been stabbed and beaten to death. And a Washington Post headline uh, said what the Osage had long already knew. It's a conspiracy to kill rich American Indians. This was such a tragedy, Chief Standing Bear. It isn't just history for you and many other members of the Osage Nation. How, how were you taught about the time known as a reign of terror when you were growing up? We were not talking about it. The... Uh, People of my grandparents' generation uh, were in their 20s and 30s, and growing up in that time, uh, we did know that they had fabulous wealth, wonderful cars, servants, even bought uh, biplanes to uh, fly around and uh, have uh, fake dogfights with each other. It was a time of uh, immense wealth uh, and also great tragedy. But we did not talk about it except uh, uh, little hints here and there when you heard, overheard them talking to the elders to each other. We 
hear and are learning a lot about in our country and um, yours too, about intergenerational trauma. And stories sometimes weren't told because of that trauma. And as the term suggests, it's passed along. How is the trauma of that period still impacting families of the Osage Nation? Uh, If I might uh, illustrate this uh, in the fact that of our 25,000 Osage people, about 5,000 or less live in our home plan now, even though this is a place where we said is our final home after being pushed from Missouri and through Kansas here. And uh, of that uh, 25,000 people, more than half do not even live in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, this uh, exodus uh, from uh, to this place needs to be replaced with an exodus of return, which is why we're working so hard here to uh, build food sustainability, cultural sustainability, and to uh, rebuild our language uh, that took such a hit, uh, not mm-hmm. only in the 1920s, Uh, with all the uh, social disruptions. But prior to this, in the 19th century, uh, those federal policies of the United States government were often marked by brutality. So uh, we are recovering again. And I think uh, this time uh, we must say uh, we need to educate ourselves. We need to take care of each other to make sure this doesn't happen again. When I was doing the research, I interviewed people like the chief and um, many descendants of people who had suffered from that period. And one of the people I interviewed was a descendant of Molly Burkhardt, who is um, the center of my book and featured in the film, whose family is being systematically targeted. Her name was Margie. And when you talk to people like Margie and you talk to others and the chief, you know, when they tell you these stories and this history, I mean, Margie uh, always said to me, you know, I didn't get to grow up with cousins because so many of her um, ancestors, her aunts or great aunts uh, um, were killed. Um, and you realize that this is really living history. And I think it's important to understand that we are not talking about that long ago. We're really talking about recent history. We're talking about a century ago. And so this history still reverberates to, the, to this day. But I also think it's important to underscore, and the chief really made this point, and, um, which is that history doesn't stop. And so we're obviously talking about these tragedies. But, you know, one of the things that always strikes me every time I visit the nation um, over the years is that it is such a vibrant nation uh, led by the chief here. And, you know, they have their own constitution, their own Congress. They have found new forms of wealth. And I always think of this one quote that an Osage lawyer has actually told me when I was visiting with the dances and actually the first time I met the chief and she had told me, you know, we were victims of these crimes, but we don't live as victims today. Hmm. David, you mentioned Molly, one of the central characters uh, of your book, Molly Kyle and her husband, um, Ernest Burkhart. They're played by uh, Lily Gladstone and Leonardo DiCaprio in the film. Of course, this these events affected so many people. Why did you choose to focus on that particular relationship? What did their experiences say that it that's so big. Yeah. I mean, to me, no family was more brutally targeted than Molly's family, but that relationship was very representational and what transpired, what happened to Molly. Molly's story is really representational of what was happening broadly. And so you can really focus in on that story to tell the larger story. And Molly was really a remarkable woman. She straddled not only two centuries, but two civilizations. 
she very boldly crusades for justice when her family is being targeted, um, often putting a bullseye on her back. And ultimately, she is betrayed. And her betrayal by somebody whom she had loved or thought she had loved and whom she thought had loved her um, is indicative and gets to the very heart of this sin and this betrayal that took place um, for the Osage back in the early 20th century. Chief Standing Bear, when Martin Scorsese got the rights to make Killers of the Flower Moon into a film, you spoke with him about some concerns you had. What was that conversation like? David uh, was introduced to our community by a respected elder, Catherine Redcorn, who was director of our museum. And uh, she began to open doors. He stepped through there and in a respectful way found a, a conversation uh, about this era and met with some of our elders who had kept records, who had uh, good histories. And uh, my role really did not come into significant action until I met Marty Scorsese and he came in and said, we are going to film here among the Osage, which he had known uh, was our uh, big concern at the time. But as soon as he said that with such conviction, I immediately offered him access to all of our language people, all of our people who uh, uh, are familiar with our traditional clothes and so on. And then I assigned my chief advisor, John Williams, to uh, be with Marty Scorsese as close as possible. He ended up having a chair, a director's chair, on set and set during the filming. And it's important that John's contribution be recognized because he has all the credentials. He was the traditional drum keeper of the Gray Horse ceremonial drum. And then at the time of the movie, uh, he was senior advisor to the Gray Horse Ceremonies. Uh, so he also was a man who uh, we relied upon for guidance, uh, especially during this movie. He has since passed. He did see uh, the first screening of the movie, thank goodness. And that's how that developed. It was through our people working with the team of Marty Scorsese. And it was not just one event. It was a process. This might sound like an obvious question, but why was that so important? Well, uh, we have been stereotyped uh, and it's being told uh, our story by others besides us. And in this movie, I can tell you, and in the book, it took a deep cooperation with the Osage people to, uh, as David will tell you, to write the book and to uh, produce this movie. Our people were, as Marty says, uh, not only in front of the camera as extras and, and others in, in the set and the ceremonies, etc., but we were behind the camera. Our younger people especially were able to work with world-class professionals in the film industry. And so, David, when you were writing this book, um, you had to grapple with these things too, right? You're not Indigenous. You're also not from Oklahoma. So how did you reckon with that, this, you know, movies of the past, books of the past, these kind of tropes, the Pocahontas, the dances with the wolves that have sort of veered into white savior territory. How did you reckon with that as you were writing? Yeah, I mean, whenever you, uh, as a reporter and as a historian, by the very nature of what you do, you are an outsider. I don't write memoirs. I don't write about myself. 
And that involves uh, always moral complications. And in a case like this, when you're writing about a deeply traumatic history, uh, history in which whites perpetrated crimes against members of the Osage Nation, uh, white settlers did, you just have to be so conscious always of that. And then the way I approached it was just to try to be as transparent as possible to express why I was there and to ask questions. And as Chief described, you know, I got to know, um, I would stay there for weeks and weeks and months and months each year. And I worked on it for more than half a decade. And over time, I just got to know, especially a lot of the Osage elders and each one would then introduce me to another elder and they would share me, share with me their story. And as a reporter and as a historian, what you're doing is you are documenting and recording and that is really what I tried to do. And then as I did to make sure I went over that documentation that I got it right and to check those facts. And as, as the chief also said, the book would not exist. I mean, it is a record of many, many oral histories and also documents and records that were trusted with me. And my only hope um, when you do something like this is that you both earn the trust and you reward that trust with the you know, with the final outcome. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. This is The Sunday Magazine, and I'm speaking with author David Grant and Osage Nation Chief Jeffrey Standing Bear about Killers of the Flower Moon. David's the author of the book by that name, and now it's been turned into a film by Martin Scorsese that tells the real story of death and betrayal in an Oklahoma Indigenous community. There will be many reviews of this film. There already have been some. Um, uh, Christopher Cote, an Osage language consultant, saw it, um, and he, uh, quote, he had mixed feelings about it. He told The Hollywood Reporter that even though he believes Marty Scorsese did a great job representing the Osage people, he was conflicted about the sympathetic depiction of Ernest Burkhardt, who's the white man responsible for some of the murders. Chief Standing Bear, what do you, what do you make of that criticism? These are complex and complicated stories, um, but what do you make of that? Well, Chris is a, a great talent, and he uh, was uh, deeply involved with the language uh, preparation. Uh, when I first met Robert De Niro, he goes, do you know my language coach, uh, Chris Cote? Hmm. And I go, yes, yes, I do. But Chris is, I think, uh, expressing what many of our younger people are correctly expressing is the story itself is something we haven't really, my generation, haven't really shared, talked about for a lot of reasons. We weren't there. We heard stories of our elders. And I can assure you, I'm married to an Osage. My children are Osage. Uh, grandchildren are Osage. Uh, I don't talk to them about this mm. until now. But I have noticed the younger people are mad uh, about it, I'm mad about the story. And... Uh, it had to be told now that I see this happening because it's, it's a discussion that's long overdue. And interestingly, in Mexico City just recently, I saw a, a journalist uh, talking about this and asking me, uh, like you are, of my views. And then they would say, this story is familiar to us. And... Uh, uh, and they're talking about their own indigenous population. And, and I just have to respond, well, that's something I need to study. So uh, this discussion will continue for years. Yeah. The, it's so many of the issues at the heart of Killers of the Flower Moon. 
are experienced by many Indigenous communities across North America. In our country, hundreds of Indigenous communities still grappling with the intergenerational trauma from the abuses and deaths at residential schools. And their protests over resource extraction, the construction of pipelines has created a lot of tension between communities and our governments and broader society. And so, Chief Standing Bear, you said, you know, when the young people say they're angry and maybe they don't know a lot of this, but but they want what we here in our country um, refer to as reconciliation. When you hear that from your the young people of your nation, what, what goes through your mind? Well, first of all, when we talk about sovereignty, which is a big term for us, we understand there are two aspects of this. There is the external sovereignty where we interface with local governments and the United States federal government. And uh, that is a constantly shifting relationship. Then there's the internal sovereignty. Internal is where uh, we define ourselves through our language and our culture and our territories, and we take care of each other within that time. And we learned this during the pandemic in March of 2020, when my staff came to me and said, Chief, we have no meat, and our children programs and elder programs, there was just a complete shutdown of the food supply network. Now we have a meat processing plant. We have herds of bison and cattle. Uh, we are uh, we built a new greenhouse. It's a 40,000 square foot greenhouse, so these are not small issues. We're going to take care of each other, and we have to. And that that's what this is about. And so if, if we had that going in the 1920s, I think a lot of this tragedy could have been avoided if we take responsibility for our own actions and not rely on the government and merchants, but take care of ourselves. That's the lesson for me in this story. David, as part of the efforts at reconciliation, education is is such a big component of that. And your book comes into play because, of course, as you well know, some Oklahoma teachers are concerned that a law passed in the state in 2021 regulating classroom discussion of race and gender could could bar them from putting your book and this history in front of kids. Killers of the Flower Moon may not be on the curriculum. What does that say to you about the political landscape when teachers are fearful that they could face repercussions for assigning your book, teaching American students about their history, their collective history? Yeah, I mean, one of the tragedies about this history early on was that it was it was initially distorted and then erased um, from curriculums. I mean, outside the Osage Nation, it, this wasn't taught, it wasn't learned. And now we are at this really pivotal moment when there is this opportunity, um, as the chief said, to really begin these conversations, uh, to learn about our history. And yet, um, there is this law passed in Oklahoma is written in this very vague way that has led some teachers to fear that they can't talk about this history or the Tulsa race massacre um, because they might lose their accreditation or their or their licenses. And I think that would just be a terrible mistake because the truth is history shapes us uh, no matter what. Um, but if we ignore it, it festers, it distorts us, it creates grievances. And so the trick for us is to harness history and, and take from it and learn from it, both the, you know, the stirring and the triumphant, but also the cautionary and the truth. Um, and that's how we learn how to be the kind of people and nation we want to be. And so 
I, I think it's essential um, that this history uh, be taught. I can't see why it shouldn't be, um, but I'd be really curious to hear the chief's thoughts on this. In our small way, we have been building our own private school system. And there the Osage language is uh, primary as much as we can. And our traditions and culture are honored in ways we could not do in a public system. Uh, but that is our solution. And uh, it's expensive, yes. And getting teachers is hard, especially in rural areas. Uh, but that is a way we believe we can continue a free and open discussion. You, you cannot keep important information secret forever. Uh, and the good things will last and continue, and there will be a record somewhere. Although lots may be lost, uh, I, I was just, like I said, uh, in Mexico City, I could not help but think about how much of their uh, tribal historic record was lost, but there was so much kept. And that's how we do. There are sayings of our elders, be good to one another, they say. Follow the drum, put respect first. All these sayings are the sayings of the ancient ones. And we keep those important lessons close to us. We may have lost so much, but we keep what we can. David, you spent years researching, working on this book, pouring over those historical documents, interviewing families. But at some point, you put the book out into the world and you, you stepped away from it, or at least, you know, from the writing of it and putting it out there. How... How has, though, this all changed you, or has it? You know, I think that when I worked on the book for all those years, um, I, you know, I really wasn't sure if people would read it. Um, I didn't really know if it was the kind of history that, you know, people would be willing to read. And so I have been struck that people have received it um, and have read it. But the thing that was most important to me when I wrote that book was to address my own ignorance. I mean, and that's really how I go about life. I'm always just trying to address my own ignorance. And that's why I go from one project to another. And and I was just shocked by how that I didn't know anything about this. And so when I worked on the story, I, I did that and hopefully tried to address, you know, the ignorance outside the Osage Nation. And now that there is a film... I think the real change is that this conversation now has a chance to grow. And Chief had said it, it will go on for years and years. And I think that's how history grows. You know, history to me is always a living organism. It is a dynamic process. It is not static. It is not defined in one book. It is not defined in a movie, no matter how great that movie it is. It, it grows through conversation, through new voices, through conversations like we're having now, any other conversations that will hopefully take place, new records that will be found, new stories that will be heard. Um, and to me, that is hopefully, I'm hopeful that will be the real change. At the end of the book, there's a quote about the Osage Nation that really um, struck with me, and especially kind of in these messy times in our world. And, and the quote reads, as you both will well know, today our hearts are divided between two worlds. We are strong and courageous, learning to walk in these two worlds, hanging on to the threads of our culture and traditions. Chief Standing Bear, you talked about um, the teachings of your ancestors and that being passed on. When you hear those words, that quote, what does it make you think? The same thing. I, that, that was well said. Our people uh, really must turn to higher authority like we all should for guidance 
Um, this is a lesson I've learned, and I'm thankful for it. And uh, we, we have to find our strength all around us, as the elders would say. Everything you want to know is right, right in front of you. And uh, uh, we, we call it Wanach uh, Ali, the Holy Spirit. And I'm not trying to be religious to everybody, but they always uh, talk about that power, those old folks. And uh, I'm starting to get a glimpse of what they, what they mean. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I say Ueno. Is that how I say thank you? Uena is Uena. Now they've been doing that more recently. Uh, shortcut. Uh, I know the men would say Dali Wajoa, which means you did good. Thank you both. I appreciate so much you both sharing your thoughts and for teaching us this history. So many people didn't know. Appreciate you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uena. David Gran is the author of Killers of the Flower Moon, which Martin Scorsese has adapted for his latest movie. Jeffrey Standing Bear is the principal chief of the Osage Nation. And with that, we come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are Latifa Abdeen, Tracy Fuller, Levi Garber, Andrew Huang, Pete Mitten, and Aronde Williams. We had additional help from audio technician Emily Caravazio. Our senior producer this week is Sarah Joyce Battersby. Our executive producers are Brian Colton and Donna Dingwall. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.